may be aware that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. It is not only because he is the author of the Old Testament book Lamentations, it is also because he is the author of Jeremiah, and it is full of grief. He is making an accounting of the rebellion and the hardness and the closed ear and the closed eye of the southern kingdom, Judah. He is the prophet who presides over their being taken into exile to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And so he precedes that day of exile by several years, testifying to the king and his court of what they are as a people, what they have become, and what the Lord must do as he had promised long before they entered the land, back in Deuteronomy, that if they disobeyed him, if they disregarded his statutes, if they worshiped the gods of their neighbors, the land would spew them out, and the Lord himself would chase them out and scatter them among the nations and even call them Lo-Ami, not my people. This same ministry of Jeremiah's is echoed in the book of Hosea. It's very dark. It's very grim. Yet every now and then, throughout the book of Jeremiah, the clouds clear, the sun breaks through, and it warms the face of the prophet and everyone who reads what the Lord has told him to write. Because every once in a while, the Lord gives a testimony that he is not going to put an end to his people forever. That he is not going to cast them off forever. That he is not going to forget them. And today we come to one of those glorious daybreak moments in the book because it tells us everything we need to know about how to walk before the Lord ourselves when we are being disciplined. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us understand your word as we now come to its public reading and preaching. Lord, I pray that the words of my own mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Make it so. And Father, make it so that your people recognize your authority herein, your word. And make it so that they have your word revealed to them in their mind, in their heart, and that their will is reformed by this very word, that they would stop believing lies or errors that they have been believing, that they would start believing the truth that they haven't been believing, that they would be strengthened in the things they already know, that they would rejoice to hear again that which they have just been rejoicing in today. Lord, whatever be the need of the hour, we pray that you would grant it, by your power, by your mercy, according to the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 24 through 31, verse 3. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. 
In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is God's word. How does God speak to his children when he is laying hard upon them his displeasure against their sin? Think of Peter. On that dark night, he denied Christ three times. His conscience was soon on fire with his guilt. He went out and wept bitterly. Think of David. After his adultery with Bathsheba, his conscience, too, was soon on fire. In his confession at Psalm 51, he said, My sin is ever before me. Think of the worldly church at Laodicea. The Lord's letter to them tells us that he was this close to spitting them out of his mouth. Revelation 3.17 says they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And think of Judah. Think of Judah. During their 70 years of exile in Babylon, Daniel cried out, saying they deserved all the calamity that fell upon them because they were treacherous and rebellious transgressors who now lived in open shame because of God's hard strokes of discipline. Think of your own life. Think of your own life. Sometimes your conscience is on fire with the guilt of sin. Sometimes the stroke of the Lord's rod against your worldliness is hard and heavy to wake you up from the dullness that you're in, to wake you up to the Lord's displeasure. It may be a sickness in your body or strife in your relationships or some other painful chastisement. In your conscience, you're going to know if these have come from God to separate you from your sin. You'll know. But what is God saying to us when his displeasure against our sin presses down hard and heavy upon us? What is God saying when we begin to think we deserve to be utterly forsaken by him? What does he want to say right at that moment? Well, beloved, the answer to these questions is what you have just heard in the text of Jeremiah. When your conscience is on fire, when your relationships are on fire, when your body is on fire, when you are under the rod of the Lord's discipline, it is especially then he wants to speak to you of his love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The Lord speaks those words to his church, not because he has already taken her out of all of her troubles and already brought her to a pleasant place. No, he speaks those words to her while she is being disciplined. For he knows it is a fresh hearing and knowing and resting in his love that makes his discipline effective. 
fresh, effusive expressions of his love are what he wants his people to hear. Even while we are under the rod of his discipline. Isn't this what the Lord said to the worldly church of Laodicea? Again, Revelation 3. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He said that to the worst church of the batch in those seven letters. Isn't this what he said to Daniel while Daniel cried out from Babylon? Daniel 9.23, the angel Gabriel says this to, to Daniel. At the beginning of your cries for mercy, Daniel, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. That's what the Lord put in Daniel's ear in Daniel 9 when you hear Daniel crying out and confessing things that he must be having the worst day of his life, worse than the day he was carried over the border into Babylon. The angel comes. You are greatly loved. Beloved, the Lord God wants you to be refreshed. He wants you to be assured of his love, even while you're under the rod of his discipline, because it will be his love that turns you back to him and makes you better cling to him because you have been persuaded again that he clings to you. It will not be his rod that turns you back to him. It will not be the rod. Now, the rod of the Lord does something important. But it does not turn the child of God back to God with sincere faith. The rod makes us think how near God is. It makes us think how powerful God is. It makes us know how all-knowing God is, how displeased God is, how right God is. The rod does all of those things, necessarily. But if all we have is the divine rod on our back, then we will flee even further from God. We must also have his divine love echoing and filling and softening our heart. Then we will turn to him by his discipline. Then we will run into his arms. Then we will start to pray again. Then we will start to praise him again. Then we will start to confess him again. Then we will start to search for him again. Because his love has won us again. We will turn back to his wisdom, back to his way, back to his righteousness. So in discipline, God does not just speak to us of our sin. He speaks to us of his love. There is no such thing as divine discipline where the Lord isn't simultaneously speaking of his love. Let me assure you, if you are under the rod and all you hear is about your sin and that's all your conscience can record, the accuser, the devil, is running the show. And the word of the gospel that belongs to you is outside in the cold. Now, in our text this morning, there are three different ways God speaks of his love. I'll name them each when we get to them, but let's start. First, 
God speaks of his love by transporting his church to the future, to the final world order. Notice what the Lord says in verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. At what time? What time is the Lord speaking of? Well, he is speaking of the latter days, which were referenced in the last verse of the previous chapter. And when are the latter days? Well, from Jeremiah's perspective, the latter days is that time in the future when the Lord's anger has run its course, <clears throat> when it has been exhausted, when it has been completed, when the Lord is done pouring out his wrath against the wicked of the nations and against the wicked of Judah. At that time, the Lord will still have a people of his own, verse 1 is saying, and those people will still have God as their God. By showing us the final world order in verse 1, God is declaring his love to us. He is saying something just like what Paul said to the Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 In the final world order, we shall be numbered among those whom God kept and whom God sheltered through all the earthly judgments of this age and the final great white throne judgment. We will be those who are kept through that. <coughs> so Jeremiah 31 verse 1 is God's way of saying, do not let your experience of my vengeance in this present age confuse you. Let your focus be my promise of your place in the world to come. I love you. I will not lose you under the trampling feet of war horses. I love you. I will not lose you under the bullets flying over the fields. I love you. I will not lose you in any of the judgments I bring upon the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. Beloved, this means after every storm of his wrath is over, which he speaks of in the previous chapter, actually, after all the storms of wrath are over, God will remain and so will you remain. Habakkuk needed to learn this lesson himself because he saw that the fig would no longer be upon the branch, that the stall would be empty, that the land would be trampled by war horses, and that he himself would lose his life in it. But the Lord said to his soul, the just shall live by faith. You will not have been lost among the wicked because of God's love. You will not have been cast away with the wicked. Why? Because by divine love, you have been numbered among true Israel. Do you see that in verse 1? At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. All believers will be numbered among the clans of Israel at the end of this present world order. And in fact, we are already numbered among the clans of Israel in God's books. Let me say it again. All Christian believers 
are already numbered and shall always be numbered among the clans of Israel. None of us will be lost. None of the clans will be divided. None of the clans will remain scattered. All of us will be gathered together under one shepherd as one flock in one nation, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is beautifully stated in Revelation 7, where the 144,000 are designated 12,000 per tribe, and each tribe of Israel is listed. And it's just a description of the church of Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, because all of those in the 144,000 have the name of the Father and the name of the Son upon their forehead. It's a beautiful picture. So even in Jeremiah's prophecy, he is seen in the world order that is yet to come, but which has now already come in part in Jesus Christ. He has seen that all of us will be kept through the judgments. So even though we were born Gentiles, we belong by faith in Christ to the true Israel of God. Speaking of us in John 10, 16, our Lord Jesus said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is saying essentially the same thing as Jeremiah 31, 1. In the final world order, we will all be one church in Jesus Christ, all believers. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says the same thing about us Gentiles. He quotes there from Zechariah 2. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6. Paul writing to a Gentile church, describing them in the terms of Israel. He uses Old Testament scriptures about Israel to tell us who we are before God in the final world order. We are not distant strangers who have to sneak into the family. We are chosen people like they. We are a kingdom of priests. To this we are, excuse me, this is who we are in Christ in the final world order. All believers in Christ make up the true clans of Israel. This is a statement of God's love for us, that we will not be kicked out, even though we might suffer much worldly judgment, earthly judgment. The second way God speaks of his love in our text is by bringing his church back to an experience from her past. So in the first word, of his love, he takes us into the final world order. Now, he brings us back to an experience from the church's past. Notice what he says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. Verse 2 is the Lord speaking of the exodus of his people out of Egypt. While slaves there, his people had become infested with idolatry. This is recorded very explicitly in Ezekiel 20, verse 7 and 8. The people under slavery in Egypt took the gods of the Egyptians as their own gods. And when God led them out into the wilderness, they wouldn't put them away. 
But even so, the Lord came and delivered them from slavery through Moses. He led them all out into the wilderness, and once there, he was gracious to them. He gave his law to them. He was slow to anger with them. He was not quick to destroy them for all their murmuring and their grumbling. Though over 40 years he kept burying many who did not believe his word, he guarded Joshua, he guarded Caleb, and he guarded many of the younger generation. He kept them from being destroyed by the Amalekites and the Moabites. For 40 years, the text of Scripture says, their clothes did not wear out, the sandals of their feet did not wear through, he fed them quail and bread from heaven. And finally, the Lord brought them to the promised land, to the land of rest, Canaan. So the point of verse 2 then is this. Just as the people of that generation experienced God's love, so will you experience God's love, believer. He will be gracious to you. As my love, think of the Lord saying this to us, as my love brought them through many trials unto rest, so will my love bring you through many trials unto rest. Though the wilderness is a hard place, though it is not home, it is not a place where the Lord will take his eye off you. He didn't take his eye off that generation. He will not take his eye off you. So you all, and perhaps not all, but half, perhaps not half, but a quarter, perhaps not a quarter, but a tenth of the people in this room have yet to enter the worst wilderness experience of your Christian life. Some of you have already been through it. Some of you have it still ahead. The wilderness was not a pleasant place, but it was the place that God led his people. It was the place that God was with his people. It was the place where he had his eye on his people. It was the place where he poured grace on his people. It is the place where he built his people up and gave them a true heart hunger for the promised land. And it was all a type and a shadow of the heavenly rest and of the true promised land above the heavenly country. That same loving God is going to have his eye and grace upon you in whatever wilderness pilgrimage remains for you in this life. And perhaps all of us have yet to experience our most severe wilderness, or perhaps half of us, or a quarter of us, or maybe just a tenth of us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter because the Lord will be with us with an open hand of grace because he loves us. And the wilderness difficulties are no testimony to us that he doesn't love us. There is grace in the wilderness. Don't believe the false teachers who say your life is hard because God doesn't love you. That is Satan's playbook. <clears throat> Though the wilderness is hard, though it is not yet home, he does not take his, his eye off of us. 
My chosen ones will hear me speaking in the wilderness. My chosen ones will see me providing for them in the wilderness. My chosen ones will see me leading them through the wilderness. Even though they are in the wilderness, I will be with them and I will bring them to the rest. I have promised them. As surely as I have seated Christ in heaven, you shall be seated there too. This was a word especially hopeful and encouraging to the generation of Jeremiah. Because they would be in the wilderness being taken into exile and in the wilderness on their return. But this is a word to the whole church of Christ. We are pilgrims too. So God's love is not just in the future. It is in the past. That's what we are learning from verse 2. God's love is not just to be found in the future, but it's to be found in the past. And God's love is not just to be found in your own experiences. It is to be found in the experiences of others. That's another lesson of verse 2. Look closely into the lives of Abraham, Moses, Caleb, Look closely into the lives of David and Peter and Daniel and Mary and Martha. Look closely for what? Look, look closely for what God's love really is. Because, beloved, sometimes you cannot see God's love very well in your own experience. And that might be because your great blindness, your great despair, or your great anger and frustration and disappointment You have to train your heart and mind on the terms of verse 2. This is the Lord's own speech. Go look and look long into the experiences of God's love in the lives of his saints. I will tell you this morning, there is no way I could have ever been a pastor if I did not see God's love in the life of King David, who committed adultery and killed with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. I was never going to be able to be a pastor unless that text was full of nectar, unless that true dealing of the living God with his own appointed king could be a fruit that I could squeeze and eat because I learned that God loved this man who committed murder and this man who committed adultery and this man who lied and thieved, and has yet to keep any of the Ten Commandments. There's no way I could have taken this call without the experience of God's love in David's life, in the Word of God. Beloved, you are given permission in verse 2 of Jeremiah 31 to harvest like a person in an orchard the experiences of others with God's love and make it your own. We are meant to let God's love for others testify to his love for us. We are meant to see ourselves as caught up, caught up in the great wilderness caravan of pilgrims who are under the banner of God's love. Now, the third way, the third way God speaks of his love is by coming to each of us personally in the present, with a stunning revelation 
from eternity past. That's verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, the first thing we need to do with verse 3 is to make a slight improvement on the English translation of this verse that's in the English Standard Bible. You just heard me read the verse opens with, the Lord appeared to him from far away. A better, more literal translation of the Hebrew is, the Lord appeared to me. It's Jeremiah the prophet who is referring to his own experience with the Lord coming, appearing to him, and speaking to him about divine love. This means that Jeremiah in verse 3 is telling us about this special movement of the Lord upon his own soul. From far away, the Lord, Yahweh, made himself present to the prophet in a very personal way and gave the prophet a stunning verbal revelation from eternity past concerning divine love. That's what Jeremiah is saying in his opening words. He appeared to me. Now, before we come to the stunning revelation, let's consider the Lord's presenting himself to the prophet. And this is confirmed, by the way, in verse 26 of this same chapter, because it says in verse 26 that eventually Jeremiah woke up from this dream, this sleep that he's in where he's receiving this revelation, and it was pleasant to him. So he's telling us about the Lord bringing this revelation to him while he's in some kind of prophetic position. So let's talk, though, for a moment about the appearing. Beloved, this appearing in verse 3, please hear me now, this appearing in verse 3, it is the foundation, it is the end of all true religion. That little expression at the beginning of verse 3. It is the foundation and it is the end of all true religion. The personal encounter of the individual soul of man with the living God is the foundation and is the end of all true religion. Now, yes, you're probably already thinking it. Yes, there is a real and a necessary and a permanent collective character to our relationship with God. We belong to the church, yes. We are the people of God, not just the person of God, yes. But the foundation and the end of all true religion is the personal and the individual before the living God. Not the individual on his own, but the individual under the sway and under the influence and under the capture of the living God who has appeared to the individual soul and spoken clearly and authoritatively into the soul. I would that you all be prophets, was the hope of Moses before the appearing of Jesus Christ. And now the Heidelberg Catechism so wisely 
gives the proof scriptures to say we indeed all now in Christ share this personal revelation of the gospel to our souls that comes by the appearing of the risen Christ to our souls where he comes from a great distance and shines into our very souls the revelation of divine love. This is the same thing Paul means by these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing Jeremiah is describing in verse 3. The Lord appeared to him, and the Lord shined into Jeremiah's heart the glory of divine love, a love that continued in divine faithfulness down to the day where it appeared again in the face of Jesus Christ, in the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ, where he now lives to make intercession for those whom he has always loved. There's such a beautiful expression of this by the late Gerhardus Voss. I decided I couldn't keep it from you. Religion has been enabled to grow in the same degree that it has become conscious of its own direct encounter with God. When its roots touch that water, the plant is ready to bloom. It is easy to understand that more of the fine gold of piety enters an act whereby the single creature with all its sense of frailty and dependence casts itself upon the bosom of God than there can possibly ever be in the most impressive worship offered by men to God in their joint capacity. In other words, Voss is saying, the individual's personal experience with the living God, because the living God has come to the individual soul and shown into it the glory of his love in Christ, that individual experience is always better and more powerful than even getting a basilica filled with 20,000 worshipers singing in perfect pitch harmony the best psalms of the world. It is that individual experience that actually fires and feels the joint collective experience. He appeared to me, Jeremiah says. Beloved, isn't this the gospel encapsulated? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word dwelt among us in the flesh, tabernacled among us, appeared to us. Appeared to me is a remarkable revelation of intimacy. In the communication of his word, God comes himself as a forecast of what he would do in the gospel. All fully realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, appearing to speak makes revelation more than mere communication of truth. Appearing to speak puts God himself in his word. 
and he brings himself by his word into the soul of the man who hears. And what does he bring? A stunning revelation. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, this is called love. This is called love first and foremost for this reason. Because God himself is putting his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength into this desire for these people whom he has loved before the foundations of the world. The supreme force of all religion issues from the disclosure of this love to man. Everlasting love, a love that embraces me and belongs to me before my own creaturely existence is what it is. It's the divine electing love that is spoken of so often in the New Testament. A love that embraced me and belongs to me before my creaturely existence. Thus, nothing in my creaturely existence is the foundation for this love. And nothing in my creaturely existence can weaken this love or disturb this love or defeat this love. So when I am under the rod of discipline, when my life is chaos, when I'm in the wilderness and I can't hardly breathe, nothing that I am experiencing in my creaturely existence when I'm even tangled up in sin again, the same old sins, nothing in my creaturely existence can touch and disturb and defeat this love. Pastor, come on, that's way too gracious. That's way too much good news. That's way too wonderful. Beloved, this is the only kind of wonderful that will lead you out of sin. This will be the only kind of wonderful that will make you kiss the rod of discipline and bless the Lord for it. This is the only kind of wonderful that will turn you back to him. It is the only love there is for sinful men. To be loved with an everlasting love means God will never discover something about you that will later disillusion himself about you and have him cancel it. He set his love upon you before you were conceived. God does not love us. Listen carefully now. God does not love us because Jesus Christ has been crucified for our sins. This is not true. God does not love us because Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. Nor does God love us because we have believed that Jesus Christ died for our sins and now live for him. That is not true either. Neither of those statements are true. Both statements are not of the truth because both statements only open God's love to us after an action has been completed in time. It is not what the scriptures are saying. It is not what they say everywhere. God's love isn't open to us only after some action, either of his or ours, has been completed in time. In, Revel in Jeremiah 31.3, his love has been assigned to us from everlasting to everlasting. And that is why 
the actions that we see take place in time concerning our faith in his son have taken place. The truth is, because God loved us before the creation of all things, for that reason, Jesus Christ was sent into the world to be crucified for our sins. That's the truth. The coming of Christ into the world was a continuation of God's faithfulness to us. A faithfulness to us that he determined to keep according to his everlasting love. So the truth is God's love for us is first. And his love is why we have come to believe in Christ. And his love is why we have come to now live for Christ. We didn't unlock his love. He loved us from the very beginning. And therefore, he sent his son because we had fallen away. It was always the plan. Beloved, let me then make the final point. What does God want to say to you when you are miserable, when your conscience is on fire, when your body is sorely afflicted by discipline and rod? What does the Lord God say to you? He appears before your soul and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. Even this rod that is upon your back right now is a continuance of my faithfulness to you because I have loved you with an everlasting love. This rod will never get away from me, the Lord says to you. It will never be put in the hand of somebody who hates you. I love you. He tells this to you to melt your heart, to run into his bosom and bury yourself in his arms, and to say, I was a fool to wander from you. I was a fool to think of you as hard. I was a fool. Oh, Lord, refresh me in your love. And please put away your rod. He speaks to you of his love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word that came to the prophet Jeremiah and has now come to us. We pray that we would believe this word. And if the, the notes of your love sound like a strange note to us, we pray that we would not try to resolve the discord by looking away from your word. Subdue us to the authority of Scripture. Subdue us to its excellence and truthfulness. Subdue us to its light. Subdue us to its foundation. We thank you, Lord, that you yourself have set your name upon it. You yourself have endorsed it, ensured it. You yourself have, in, have given it. And it can no longer be proven untrue unless you yourself be torn down. Oh, Lord, help us build all of our thoughts of you upon your word. Teach us that you love us so that our hearts are changed when we are under the rod of your discipline. 
Teach us that you are near in every affliction, so near that you have designed it in its duration, details, and depth. And it's all because of your perfect love toward us, that you are working out your faithfulness to us. And we thank you that you've done this most grand and gloriously in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. For in him you appear to us and open to us the window by which we see the light of everlasting love. In his name we pray, amen. Let us rise and sing 4-2.